Thank you for joining us. This is Susie Delaney, and what you're about to hear is off the record. What you're about to listen to was initially a project I did for graduate school. I was conducting a three-part series on intercultural communications, and I knew that my friend Marina had immigrated to the United States from the Ukraine when she was a little girl. So I invited her to come to my house and be interviewed. And she came over, she had a terrible cold, but we felt it was important to have the conversation. This was back in November of 2021. So I made us two very good, very strong hot toddies, and we got comfortable in front of my microphone. And what happened next was really special. We thought we would talk for a few minutes, but we ended up sitting, talking uninterrupted and filling at least three podcast episodes full of the story that Marina gifted me with, which was personal and difficult and dramatic. And for someone like me that grew up in the United States, incredibly foreign, And so I turned it in. I got an A in the class. But then things started to happen in the world. And as things have unfurled, both Marina and I felt it was important to share this story with all of you. So please, go ahead. Make yourself a hot toddy and join us. Okay, we are here with Marina Gore, and she has really a very amazing and unique story to tell that we're going to share today. Would you mind sharing what it is that makes you so special and different? Oh, thank you, Susie. (laughs) I'm glad to be with you here today. Um, I'm Marina Gore. I was born Marina Vyacheslavovna Kananyanka in Kiev, Ukraine, in 1971. Uh, in those days, it wasn't the, U- well, it was the Ukraine, of course, but it was um, more broadly part of the Soviet Union. So I am a product of that era. And um, some of my earliest memories from childhood involve being at school. School was the first institution that Uh, in a world, in a society built on institutions, it was the first real institution that I had interaction with. Your school in the Soviet Union? Yes. When you were Um, So, yeah, five. I went to kindergarten at five. And I was actually expelled from kindergarten. What? (laughs) Yes. Um, Everybody had to do chores. Uh And um, when it came my turn to do chores, and I, I, I think maybe I was put in charge of wiping tables for that day. Um, but I said, you know, my father is a very important man. <laughs> and I don't do, I don't clean. I don't do chores. So that was not a very communist, uh, collectivist attitude. So my mother was called in and they decided that it was best to wait one year to... Um, Uh, to when I reached first grade, and that would be when I would enter school. Um, In first grade, the memory that, the only memory really that stands out um, has to do with being called on by the teacher. So in those days, they would call on you and ask you to stand up. Well, they'd ask you to stand up if you got the answer wrong. So you knew you were in trouble when you were asked to stand up. Uh, Whatever the question was, I don't remember, but... um, 
teacher said to me, Kananyanka, stand up. Tell the class if you don't why you don't know the answer. Is it because you're stupid or because you're a Jew? <gasps> Marina. Yeah. So um, in those days, in the 1970s Soviet Union, my parents' marriage, my mother is Jewish, my father isn't, but it was considered a mixed marriage. And um, my nationality and my uh, religious and ethnic background was printed on my passport. So um, it was a sort of institutional, um, uh, an institutional marker, a way to um, identify who was a Jew and who was not in a society where everyone looked kind of homogenous. Mm -hmm. um, so that those are my earliest memories of childhood. And I didn't have really excellent um, experiences with those memories. But uh, we, we uh, my parents applied to leave the Soviet Union two years before we actually left. Mm -hmm. And um, that was a difficult position to be in. How old were you then? So when we left the Ukraine, I was seven. So the process must have started when I was five, but I didn't know about it. So around that time you were going to kindergarten. Right. And I don't know if part of the reason they expelled me had also to do with that, uh, with us trying to leave. Because if you apply to leave and you're refused, that was a very bad thing. Uh, my father lost his job. Ultimately, my brother and I could not go to school anymore. So it was a, it was a really, you, you were punished severely. Um, you no longer got the benefits that the state afforded you. So it was as if you were... A traitor. Rejecting what the state had to offer. Exactly. So it, if you didn't, you were gambling, your family was gambling everything exactly. that you did have on right. something yes. potentially better. That's right. And in those days, they only let people out to go to Israel, right? Because that's the Jewish homeland. So they right. figured, you know, the final Hitler's final solution didn't work, so they'd get rid of the Jews by sending them to Israel. And yeah. those were the only people who were able to leave in those days. Uh, but I think because my father actually did have a very sensitive, high-level research job, that might have complicated things um, for our exit. So I, I'm going <clears> to <throat> I'm going to ask you. Um, sure. So just out of full transparency, Marina, you and I both have similar uh, family and genetic background in that I am also 50% Russian Jew, um, though my uh, great-grandparents came here from Russia um, when they were very, very young. They had an arranged marriage and picked each other up on the way to America, basically. It was prearranged. They wow. snuck out of Russia. Wow. Um, I'm told that my great-grandfather hid... Um, in a cart full of rotten cabbages so that they wouldn't wow. check for him at the checkpoints. And that's how he got through and snuck out. And then wow. he had prearranged with a, a family um, that was in England, prearranged to pick up their daughter on the way to America and marry her, mm -hmm. bring her to America, which they did. Um, I grew up being told, don't tell anybody you're Jewish. Yes, right. Don't tell anybody. That's right. Um, since I'm 50% Jewish, my father is Irish, so I have an Irish name. And I don't look... I'm, I, you can't see us, but we're both blonde and very fair. We don't look very Jewish. Right. Um, and my family considered that a lucky thing. And I was told from a very young age, whatever you do, never, never, never tell anybody you're Jewish. Right. Um, like a, a fear thing. Even though mm -hmm. I was in America. Yeah. And... 
my mother was not born in, in Russia. My grandparents were not born in Russia. They still were transferring fear yeah. through the generations. Right. So I'm specifically interested in your story because you're helping me to understand why, were there, were, why were they so afraid that they push that fear into future generations that are in America. Right. So you're telling yes. me that as a five-year-old even, yeah. that you were told. That's right. And as I said, it was on your passport. Jewish. Origin of mother, Jewish. Origin of father, Ukrainian. That's, yeah. That's how they did it. I didn't, um, I, I didn't have my own passport. I had uh, a sort of a... A joint. I can't really describe it. We don't have anything similar here in the states, but it was a passport that was connected to my parents' passport. Gotcha. For something for children. Right. Okay. So um, I didn't mean to digress. It's just so interesting to me. So you're in. You are. What language are you speaking? Russian. You're speaking Russian. Right. Are you being raised with a religious Jewish household? Not at all. Same. Quite atheist, in fact. Same. Same. Um, a complete rejection of religion. Mm-hmm. So, in a lot of ways, uh, my parents were a product of the culture, and mm-hmm. uh, because religion was frowned upon. Right. Um, so yeah, no, no, they were superstitious. My parents, despite my father being highly, highly educated, he was superstitious, but not religious. Mm-hmm. Interesting. Yeah. So, even though you, your family had rejected the religion. You you're still you're still branded, Labeled. branded you're Jewish, yes. um, and right. that's you know clearly not a full fledged Russian citizen then if you're right. Jewish, right? And so you're five years old, and these are the these are the messages that you're getting. That's right. And and in the meantime, your parents have put your family in this incredibly precarious position, right? But you don't know. That's right. I don't know yet. But I can see that my parents are stressed. Mm-hmm. And I actually didn't learn that we were leaving the Soviet Union until about three weeks before we left because my parents started packing everything up in boxes and giving it away. We couldn't take anything. We couldn't, you know, we couldn't take furniture. We could take the clothes that could fit in a suitcase. Mm-hmm. And I, I don't remember if we had two, suitcase for the, two suitcases for the four of us or whether we had a suitcase each <coughs> but I remember my brother having to go being separated the day that we took a train out of Kiev um, I remember being separated from my brother because he had to carry the the luggage and I was very very frightened because this was all a surprise um, but the the way that we got out and I really have to um, commend my mother for her bravery on this the way that we got out was uh, there were some U.S. senators visiting Kiev at the time, and this was during Jimmy Carter's administration. Okay. So they were doing a tour of, of Kiev, and my mother and a group of other people called Refuseniks. Um, Refuseniks? Refuseniks, that's what they were called. Okay. Yeah. Uh, they threatened to demonstrate. Right to to line up outside and scream at the U.S. senators what was happening, how they were being mistreated, and I do remember the KGB coming to our apartment building. I was we were coming into the lobby and they were waiting and they separated me from my parents and they said, "Do you love your mom and dad?" 
And I said, of course I love my mom and dad. Well, if you love them and you don't want them to be put away in jail, you have to tell them to stop what they're doing. Oh my gosh. Yeah. Oh, Marina. Big, two big scary men. And at this point, how old are you? Uh, I'm seven, so I'm, okay. I'm seven at this point. Okay. I think the paperwork happened relatively quickly. That's why we, it was just weeks. Mm -hmm. um, but I'm, I'm actually not positive. That's, that's just because uh, they, you know, they didn't, my parents didn't believe in telling kids things. Mm -hmm. um, kids well, were, I can understand. I mean, if the KGB is going to separate you from your parents as a tiny little child and question you, I can understand. Yeah. Why? Why? I mean, that it's still hard as a child to grow up with that kids. attitude, but I could see where that comes from. It's yes. sort of just self-preservation for you right. as well as them. Yes. This is amazing. Huh. This is so different from the American experience. Yeah, I'll tell you another story that was quite different from the American experience and um, certainly formed me into the person that I am today and also to do with my parents keeping things from me. So in those days, this, this is when I, I had my tonsils out. In those days in the Soviet Union, there, when you went into a hospital, you were quarantined. And of no course, matter what? no matter what, well, if you were having any kind of procedure, um, uh, you were quarantined. So, and there were no phones, because right, it was actually very, um, I don't want to use the phrase third world, but it was uh, quite a poor, economy and we had lack of resources. Mm -hmm. We did not have antibiotics. Antibiotics were reserved for only only for emergencies in the most dire of circumstances. And there was no anesthesia in those days. So if you got dental work, it was usually um, pulling teeth out with no anesthesia. And um, I don't know about other surgeries, but um, my surgery did not, um, uh, I, I didn't get anesthesia. So my parents, who you were, wait, you were awake during your tonsillectomy. Oh yeah, oh yeah. So my parents, in their wisdom, decided that they just drop me off at the hospital and not tell me what was happening. Oh. Right. So I, I think I was there about two or three days in the pediatric ward, and did they I, stay with you? No, no, no. They, you were quarantined in the hospital by yourself. And there were no phones, and they were able to come downstairs on the outside and, sh and shout up to the window, Marina, Marina, and you'd come to the window and you'd wave. And sometimes, I, I think they had apples for me, and they, they, they brought apples. So day two or three comes around. Um, I still don't know what's happening, why I'm there. Nobody's explained anything to me. Day three, the nurse comes, big, big woman. I mean, of course, I was a small child, but large woman comes and says, Kadenienka, I let's go. Okay, she brings me to a room, straps me to a chair, kind of like a dental chair. And a, a man comes into the room and he's got a, a, a coat, which used to be white, but has some kind of something on it, some kind of staining. And he had one of those round reflector mirrors on his head so that he could she he could direct the light and see what he was doing and I remember um, he's sitting in the chair and having a, my mouth propped open by a metal um, a, a piece of metal so my mouth would stay open and the nurse pressed on me 
and the doctor reached in with with uh, forceps and scissors, snipped out my tonsil, and put it in a kidney-shaped metal bowl next to me. And I'm still, I just, I'm in so much shock that I can't believe what's happening. It's painful. It hurt. It didn't hurt. I don't remember pain. I just remember shock. And then I saw my tonsil in the kidney bowl. It started to, to, to pulse. And I became so terrified that I screamed and blood sprayed all over the doctor's coat. And I remember the rational part of me thinking, oh, that's what all those stains on his coat are. So this is the, this is the kind of medical treatment that I was subjected to. And it's, it, you know, it was a formative experience for sure because it forged me into someone very physically strong. And I don't know that I, and I, I think I have a pretty high tolerance for pain and I don't know that I would have been that way. It, you know, I mean, I'll never know now, but it was certainly a formative experience. As a little girl, strangers literally strapped you down and yanked your tonsils out. Cut pieces out of me. And then my, my adenoids too, not just my tonsils. And that involved a curved scissor up in the nose. But by then I was just so shocked that I was beyond screaming. Yeah. <laughs> I'm a little shocked just hearing the story. Are you? Well, yeah. I mean, we've all, I mean, I remember, yeah, <laughs> I'm a little speechless. Yeah. Oh my gosh. Right. Oh my gosh. But now I don't get strep throat because I have my tonsils out. <laughs> On the bright side. So, um, yeah, that's, so that, that's, I mean, that's, it needed to be done, but yeah. what the story you just told me is incredibly brutal. Yes. 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 The worst part of it for me was not knowing what was going to happen. Nobody Honestly, talked to nobody me. talked to me and nobody explained what was happening. And I think it's also caused me to be the kind of person who's very inquisitive and I ask a lot of questions. Um, I am quite formulaic about keeping a, a running note on my phone to ask questions of the doctor. And I think, you know, perhaps that's, that's, um, part of the reason why I'm that way well of course <laughs> that that as you said it was a formative experience it was and you didn't know and your parents I'm sure you have some feelings about your parents and their choices but they were making choices within this context that is really foreign yes to us right now uh, sitting it is. here it's, it is they were making decisions in yes. a very different reality they than were. you and I have made decisions about our right. children it's right. I mean, they knew what you were in for, and they did. They chose not to let you have, be in agony over what was about to happen for days, and just yeah. it was a choice, right, right or wrong. Right. They were. I'm sure in their minds, they were trying to make the best. They choice. did. They were. There's no question that they weren't doing it to be malicious. No. But, um, I think it 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 wasn't the best choice. I think if had I known, I would have. Um, it, it might have been an easier experience for me overall. And culturally, the choices that we have to make, we may be taking for granted mm -hmm. the options that we have within we a reality in our culture that doesn't exist everywhere. That's right. That's right. So things were quite different for me growing up. My formative years were not, uh, not that anyone's formative years are typical, but they were extremely atypical uh, compared to the average American. Right, because now you're an American. Right. So t when you're ha having social interaction or professional interaction, 
you have a different background. I do, very much so. And although I consider myself American, I also realize how much of my formative, uh, or, or how much my formative years shaped my um, uh, outlook and my and the way that I process things. Mm -hmm. And I would say that my sensibilities in terms of politics and freedom and even individualism are very much American, mm -hmm. um, but in other ways, I'm also a product of my culture. When you referred earlier in your story about the collectivist culture mm -hmm. that you lived in yeah. and when you refused to clean the tables, yeah. and that was that was more of an individualist statement it than was. a statement, and yeah. so you were punished I was. for not um, Conforming. And conforming to the culture yeah. you lived in, are you an individualist or a collectivist now? Um, I would say that um, it depends on the context, mm -hmm. but I would say more of an individualist than mm -hmm. a collectivist in my personal life. Mm -hmm. In terms of, because I work for a large institution, mm -hmm. um, so I, I do, and, and um, I ended up being a union leader for 13 years. Interesting. Yeah, so it's in that sense, uh, in the larger sense, in the um, work that I devote my professional time and energy to, I would say I'm a collectivist. Mm -hmm. um, personally, I like my freedoms. I like I like to have choices. I like options. Mm -hmm. I like um, being able to make decisions, even though I know they may be wrong. But to having those that the freedom mm -hmm. to do that, so. I don't know if that answers your question, but it does. Yeah, it does. Do you think that that um, that that love of individualism is partially fueled by the fact that you you lived in a different, a completely different kind of society? Absolutely, mm -hmm. absolutely. Because I knew it was bad, and even though I didn't have the too many experiences with institutions. All of them were bad. All the experiences that I did have, they were all bad, all negative. So nothing positive. You don't. You didn't come. I out. I do not remember a single positive um, experience within an it, within an institution in the Soviet Union. In your seven years, you lived there for seven yes. years. Your formative right. years with your parents. Right. Um, okay. So can I ask you? Because I grew up in elementary school, learning about people in Russia and the thing that they would always teach us is that they have no toilet paper, they stand in line for bread. It's true. It's all true. All those stories were true. Absolutely true. So as I said, I don't want to apply the term third world mm -hmm. because it's derogatory. Um, but it was quite impoverished. Mm -hmm. It was it was very impoverished. So uh, supermarkets, big, spacious, lots of shelves, empty, empty shelves. Um, now that all of us have lived through COVID and we remember going to the toilet paper aisle and seeing those empty shelves, shelves, that was the norm, right? So one day there might be mustard, right? It's shelves and shelves of mustard. And once it was gone, that's it, it was gone. It might be a month before it returns. It might be two, it might be three, it might be never. So there wasn't, it wasn't like uh, pulling up to your Publix and um, you know, having three or four different kinds of mustards. No, you, or Instacart. No, right, right. Even mustards. even more luxurious. So you you took what you got, mm -hmm. 
And uh, I remember my dad telling a story when I was an adult um, that when, when we moved to New York City and we, we were living in Queens and he saw a line and he just instinctually got into the line because he knew that there was something good at the people were standing there waiting. There's something good at the end of that line. Um, and it turned out to be a, a line for an autograph of a sports star. <laughs> he didn't care no, about that. He didn't care and he didn't have anything for him to autograph. But, um, he waited in the line for a long time. But where he came from, you see a line, you get in it. That's Some correct. things at the end of that line That's you right. want. That's right. So, yes, those were, those were true stories. So, the KGB separated you from your parents, right. questioned you, yes. if you love your parents, get them to stop this. That's right. Now what? Now what indeed. Join us on our next episode when Marina takes us through her travels to three different countries until she finally makes her final destination to America. The tale will surprise you. So join us next time to hear the rest. This is Susie Delaney and you're off the record. <laughs>